good morning. It's good to be back in the pulpit with you, and uh, I uh, certainly want to thank Pastors Chris and Brian for opening up the Word for us last past two Sundays, and I, I trust that you were encouraged. I, I was still here, even if you didn't see me. I'm sitting in our designated spot here, my left, your right. been sitting there for seven years. Uh, so, uh, But uh, we were here, and it was good to, to sit and, uh, and under the preaching of, of the Word, and thankful for those brothers. Well, if you have your finger close to Malachi, you're really close to where we're going to be. You can go over one more book into the book of Matthew, <clears throat> and we're going to be in chapter 11, and we're going to read the first 19 verses. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, we have uh, some back here in the sound booth. There's a stack of Bibles back there. You can grab one. Uh, And you can take that as a gift from us if you don't own a Bible. Matthew chapter 11, and uh, let's read the first 19 verses, okay? Matthew records for us and says that when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who was not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John... The Baptist, until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." 
As we enter into Matthew chapter 11, we're we're embarking upon a new section in the gospel of Matthew, and this section focuses on various responses to Jesus' ministry. And just to get you caught up, we have seen the the birth and and the beginning of Jesus' ministry in in chapters 1 through 4. We saw the teaching of Jesus' ministry in chapters 5 through 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And then we begin to see uh, his ministry in action in in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Well, now we're beginning to see the reaction to this Jesus. We're beginning to see Oh, oh, how people are processing who Jesus is. And so over the next two chapters, chapters 11 and 12, we're going to see these various responses. Uh, these responses to Jesus' life. We're going to see responses to Jesus' authority. And we're going to see responses to Jesus' teaching. And in uh, regard to this, Jesus says in verse 6 of, of chapter 11, which we just Read, he says this Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, this sounds very similar to what? The Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But here Jesus says, blessed is the one not offended by me. The Beatitudes talked about the virtues of the kingdom, and, and, and that those who embody those virtues will receive the blessings of the kingdom. But here the blessings of the kingdom are reserved for those who do not take offense at Jesus. It's the same blessing, just packaged in a different way. Well, Jesus wasn't just offensive in his day, but he's offensive even our present day, isn't he? Increasingly, uh, uh, if, you've, if you pay attention, the culture is increasingly shocked uh, by the fact that we, we believe in Jesus. And that we believe what Jesus taught. And we believe what Jesus uh, did. Uh, They're scandalized, in in fact, by what we believe. Even this week, uh, if you've paid any attention, actually it's been over the last couple weeks, but two Christian schools have been in the news. One locally here in Louisville, another one out in Montana. They've been in the news for two different reasons. But the reason I draw this to your your attention is because of how these uh, Christians and the schools... Um, that they represent are, are spoken of even in, in the newspapers. Uh, and in fact, the news, uh, there's a, there's a, it's written as if we've got a, a bombshell here. And as one reporter wrote, these places, or, or these are, are, are the places that embrace the beliefs that sinners avoid eternal condemnation only through Jesus Christ. That a marriage consists of one man and one woman, and that human life is inestimable worth in all its dimensions, from conception through natural death. Now you might say, well, what's the big deal? Where's the bombshell? Well, in the Washington Post, the bombshell is, these people actually exist. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Whatever I'm about to tell you, you now know what kind of people we're dealing with. That's, that's the tenor. That's the tone of it. These people really exist and don't take them seriously. They believe in an eternal condemnation and that Jesus is the only way. 
They actually believe that you should protect uh, the life of, a, uh, of the unborn baby and even the, the, the one who's on hospice care at the end of their life. These are backward people, just so you know who we're dealing with. That's kind of the tenor of these, of these messages. So now the, 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 the deck is stacked so you know who's telling the truth in the story. That's basically how that's set up. Well, the same thing's kind of happening here with Jesus. Jesus teaches us, uh, even here in Matthew 11, that, that we should not be surprised when people are offended by Jesus, offended by his life, his authority, and his teaching. And so over the next six weeks, what, what I want us to do, we're going to look at, at chapters 11 through 12, and I've kind of put it over this overarching banner of blessed is the one not offended. Uh, by Jesus. And we're going to look life, authority, and teaching. Uh, and I'm going to break that over several weeks. Um, but what we need to make sure of as brothers and sisters in Christ is that we don't take offense at Jesus. I'm sure there are times that we come across the scriptures and, and maybe you cringe because the pressures of the world have come upon you and you're like, oh my word, is that really what we believe? Uh, and we feel it, don't we? We feel it. But Jesus tells us, as it concerns him, remember, blessed is the one who is not offended by him. So today we're just going to look at verses 1 through 19, where we're exhorted not to be offended by his life. That's kind of how I'm packaging all of this. Um, because the blessings of the kingdom are for those who see Jesus' life and they entrust themselves to him. We see Jesus and all of who he is and all of what he's done and all of who he says he is and, and all of what he associates with and we say, I want to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, there is great blessings for those who entrust themselves to me and follow me. And what I want to draw our attention to is three areas of Jesus' life that should draw us near, that should cause us to, to follow him, embrace him, trust him. That's the positive way of saying not be offended by him. And these include his deeds, his claims, and his associations. We're going to look at his deeds, his claims, and his associations. So let's look first at Jesus' deeds. Now, now we, we're thinking just generally what, what Jesus has done. And, and we could think of Matthew uh, 8, 9, and 10. And you might say, well, who would be offended by Jesus' deeds, his good works? Well, as we look at our text, apparently John the Baptist was even taken back by what Jesus was doing. Uh, if you look just in verses 2 and 3, uh, we see that when, when John heard about Jesus' deeds, he sent his disciples to go ask Jesus whether he was the one to come. Are, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that, that we've been waiting for? Or is there another? What about Jesus' deeds would give John the impression that Jesus isn't the Messiah? That he isn't the Savior of the world? He's, after all, the one who says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's watched Jesus' life. He's heard about what he's doing. What would be causing this dissonance in his mind? Well, for one, John's in prison. John's in prison, right? You notice that? Now when John heard in prison about the deeds, Matthew makes that little note, that, that, 
his circumstances are the lens by which he's now hearing everything and processing it all. John's in prison, and we're going to learn more about his imprisonment in chapter 14. But for now, here's what you need to know. He's basically been imprisoned for preaching the righteousness of the kingdom. He's laid down his life down for this message, this kingdom that Jesus is going to usher in. And now he's in prison for it. We don't know how long, but presumably it's been too long for John. And so while we're not given the details, it appears that John's expectations aren't being met. His expectations for Jesus have not been met. Like most Jews, he's awaiting the kingdom. John expected Jesus to judge the wicked, just as as Pastor Brian read from Malachi 3 and 4. What's going to happen when the Lord returns? He is going to bring his wrath. He's going to judge the wicked. And it's going to be clear who serve God and who do not. It's not really clear right now. And it looks like in John's eyes, the wicked are winning. Jesus, do you not know what you're supposed to do? That's what John is thinking. But all he hears about is this. This is what he he hears. He's in prison, and he's hearing Jesus is healing blind and lame people on the street. Cleansing some lepers. Perhaps he even heard that Jesus had healed the servant of the Roman soldier. Jesus, what are you doing? That's the wrong team. I'm in prison and you're helping the Romans. What are you doing? And you're just healing a couple blind guys on the side of the road. And you're going out to the leper community and you're healing them I mean, that's good and all, but that's not really furthering the purposes here. So while in prison, John begins to struggle. Jesus, are are you really the one that you say you are? Are you the one who's promised or is there another? Now, on one level, this is comforting, isn't it? We see even the, the characters in the Bible, they struggle. This is John the Baptist. He's a prophet of God, and here he is struggling with doubt. And he's met Jesus. He's hearing things that are actually happening, and he still struggles. Why is he struggling? Because things are not unfolding the way he thought they would. Does that happen to you? Jesus, I trusted you. I've prayed to you. I've begged. I have, I've sought to repent of my sins. I, I, have, I have sought to do your will. Why is this happening to me? I thought I did it right. And yet it's not unfolding the way we thought it would. That's exactly what John's probably feeling. Jesus, I've I've been preaching. I brought the crowds. I brought the masses for you. And then I said, I must decrease. He must increase. And I drove them all to you. Hello? You want to help me out? Throw me a lifeline. Maybe you feel like that. I've done it all right. It seems like it's all going wrong. 
Jesus' response to him at first really doesn't seem that helpful, to be honest. He sends word back to John. Now, I bet John thought, maybe Jesus will come visit me. (laughs) But he doesn't. He just sends word back, which again should be comforting to us. He sends word back to us as well. He sends word back to us. And here's what he says. He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now maybe on a knee-jerk reaction, John says, yeah, I know, that's what I've been hearing. (laughs) But that's not exactly how he had been hearing it. Jesus does something here. What do I mean? Well, Jesus packages his deeds. He He repeats them, the things that John has heard. He repeats them through the words of Isaiah. He repeats them through the prophet Isaiah, and and he he brings them as a compilation of all the things that the Lord was going to do when he returns. And he puts them together. These, These are coming from Isaiah 42, Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 26, and Isaiah 61, and that's just a sampling. And he brings all these servant of the Lord passages and what the the servant of the Lord will do and what Yahweh will do when he returns. And he says, I'm doing all these things. What's he doing? Jesus is recalibrating John's expectations. He's showing him that the focus and purpose of his deeds are actually in line with the messianic prophecies. He's saying, John, you have, you're just hearing what's going on. For us, it, it may be we just see what's going on, but you're not bringing it through the filter of God's Word. And so your expectations aren't met. And so what does John learn about Jesus' deeds that at least we presume he learns? Well, we learn that Jesus' deeds were focused in a particular area. John's upset that he's healing blind people and lepers, and, 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 and he's reminded that the focus of, jo- of the Lord's coming would be for the poor, for the meek and the broken. His ministry would be among the, the unimportant in the world's eyes. And often people are offended by this in Jesus. Because they think, oh, I'm more important. They don't want to see themselves in that light, in need. And yet that's what Jesus says, I come for the broken, the hurting. We also see here that Jesus' purpose in his deeds wasn't to deliver those held captive by the Roman government, but to deliver those held captive by sin. Do you see that? This offends because we think if Jesus is really the Savior, he should fix my problems now, right? I mean, isn't that what John's after? Hey, if you're really the one, you'll get me out of these chains. You'll fix my problems now. And getting me out of these chains means you're going to overthrow the Roman government. 
And so, so people begin to think that Jesus, if he's Messiah, if he's Savior, he should be undoing all the ills of society. He should be breaking down all the oppressive structures. Yet Jesus leaves John in prison and with this message, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. I'm not, I'm not into that business. That's not my purpose right now. Why? Why is that not his purpose? Because as Jesus will stand on trial and he will say, my kingdom's not of this world. Otherwise, I'd be calling legions of angels coming down. Now, does this mean we can never struggle, brothers and sisters? No. We, we are going to doubt. I doubt. I struggle at it. I mean, there are times that I'm like, Lord... Is this, is this in vain? Is all this that we do? There are times that you get discouraged. And so I think this account is here for one reason. Just John the Baptist struggled. You're going to struggle. And you're going to particularly struggle when your expectations aren't met for what you think Jesus should be doing, particularly in your life. But what this does mean is that we cannot allow our doubts to lead to offense. Don't be offended by Jesus, though. A doubt that you may, that you may go in a spiral down. And you let them control you, and then you become so utterly dejected that you reject Jesus. Don't go that way. Well, how do we keep ourselves from doing that? Well, just as Jesus gave words of strength to John in prison, so Jesus' words are the means by which he strengthens us today. When we come back to God's word, that's why we're here every Sunday. At least that's why we should be. We come back to have these things brought to our attention. Let, let the word lay our hearts bare. And we come back to God's word, and what does it do? Well, God's word recalibrates our expectations. We're reminded. We know these things. Many of us have heard this story, but we needed to be reminded again, right? We needed our expectations uh, uh, recalibrated. It reinforces our convictions. Jesus is the Messiah. He has come for broken people like me. And it rebuilds our confidence in Christ's goodness. Because that's usually where we're doubting, right? Either we doubt his goodness, he really doesn't care about me, or we doubt his ability. He can't do anything about it. But we come to passages like these. We come back to the word, and it, and it recalibrates. It reinforces and it rebuilds each one of us. That's what the word of God does for us. So as we hear God's word, our, our, what happens? Our wills, our minds are, are conformed to his. We're, we're, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, the scripture says, Romans 12. And we're reminded that he is God, and we're reminded that none of his purposes are thwarted. He's got the whole world in his hands, right? Even if it feels like we're locked up in prison, like John was. This is how John ministered, or Jesus ministered to John. It's the same way he ministers to us. He sends word to us. He sends word, and it gives us life. So first, let us not be offended by Jesus' deeds, but let us also not be offended by Jesus' claims. 
Jesus' claims. In the next set of verses, verses 7 through 15, Jesus begins talking to, about John to the crowds. Now, this whole section, verses 1 through 19, is kind of uh, filled up with, with John the Baptist at the center of the discussion. But here's, here's kind of the, the irony. This whole section is about John the Baptist, and this whole section has nothing to do with John the Baptist. Okay? Now, what do I mean? Jesus talks about John in order to make substantial claims about himself. That's what he's doing. He addresses the crowds by asking, so what did you go see in the wilderness? He knows they know, but he, he, he's in a sense drawing it out of them. Because if they admit who John is, oh, and they must know who Jesus is. See what they're doing? So first he says to them, first question, did you see a reed shaken by the wind? Just, just think about a plant out in the field and the wind's blowing and, and it's just kind of going with the current. Is that, and and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an analogy. Did you go see someone who just goes with the, the, the wind of the current culture? No, you went to go see someone who is preaching judgment and Repentance. This wasn't some guy with no backbone. No, he, he stood against the wind. He wasn't shaken by the wind. Second, did you see a man dressed in soft clothing? That's royal and wealthy apparel. He says, no, you didn't go to king's houses. You went out in the wilderness and you saw some guy in camel's hair and a leather belt. And as I said when he preached on that, I hope he had more than that on, okay? And third, he brings it down. Did you go see a prophet? Did you go see a prophet? Yes, you did, didn't you? And these questions, he's appealing to their conscience. You went out to the wilderness because there was something about John that struck a chord in you. You went out there because he was saying things deep down you knew were true. He was saying things that you knew were true, such as, I must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus tells them, you saw a prophet, but not just any prophet. What was he dressed up like? He was dressed up like Elijah. He draws their attention to their clothes. He says he's more than a prophet. He's the one who is written in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is a very big, bold claim by Jesus. In the Old Testament, what, what Pastor Brian read for us in our pastoral reading time, Malachi 3.1 records the words of the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, that he will send his messenger before him, before the awesome and great day of the Lord and before he, he comes to redeem Israel. And Jesus goes on and he says more. John was the greatest person to ever live. You see that in verse 11? He quotes Malachi 3.1. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, that's everybody, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Oh, really, Jesus? Are, are you kidding me? Now, if you're a Jew, you're probably thinking, okay, I, I, I got at least three people who are greater than John the Baptist. Abraham. I mean, he's the father of us all. 
Uh, what about Moses, the plagues, parting the Red Sea, redeeming Israel? I mean, John's been having a pretty big talk, but man, there's been no bite. Rome's still here. Well, let's just chalk it up prophets. What about Elijah shutting up the heavens, raining fire down? John the Baptist isn't the greatest, you might be thinking. If that's what Jesus says. He goes on in, in, in verse 14, and he says, in fact, John is Elijah. John is the Elijah who was promised to come, Malachi 4.5. For the day of the Lord, I will send Elijah. Now, what does all this mean? What Jesus is saying here is that John bears the prophetic role of the new Elijah who is to come to prepare the way of Yahweh, the God of the universe. John is that new Elijah. In the same way that the Jews were looking for a new David, they weren't looking for David himself to be resurrected. Now, there's a sense in which Elijah was taken up in heaven. But they knew that someone, just as Elisha, bore the spirit of Elijah, there would be one like him to come. Just like Moses, there would be a new prophet to come. And Jesus says, John is the Elijah. And by making this claim, Jesus is making an explicit claim of divinity for himself. Why? Because Malachi 3, 1 is about Yahweh. When Yahweh comes, Elijah will prepare the way. And if John is the new Elijah, then who's Jesus? Right? Do you see the connection here? He is Yahweh who has come to redeem his people. Now, this might not be shocking to you. I hope it's not, honestly. I hope this is not jaw-dropping. Oh, my word, I did not know Jesus was God. But maybe, maybe you're here today and you didn't know that. That's what we believe. That's what Jesus says. He is the God of the universe, maker of heaven and earth. And what he is saying, just as the Lord said in Malachi, I am coming, and unless you turn to me, you will be judged. There is no other way. I am the one God, and I'm the only one who can save you. Now, that's controversial in this world, isn't it? There is no other way except faith in Jesus Christ. No other way. And so if you think that's audacious, Jesus steps it up a little bit more. He goes over the top, I think, in the next sentence. Look at the other half of, of verse 11. He, he's just said, John the Baptist is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. Okay? So John, man, that's some high praises. But then the next half of the, or the second sentence, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Okay, how's that working? What's Jesus claiming here? Okay, he's just made the claims that he's Lord and Messiah. He is Savior and King of the kingdom of God. And this is what he says. And those of his kingdom, even the people who seem the least, in, uh, least significant in the world, if you are a part of my kingdom, you're greater than the greatest person who ever walked the face of the planet. Well, what makes them great? Because Jesus has welcomed you into his everlasting kingdom. 
And he's your king. He's your king. Do you see the scandalous claim here? Jesus says, number one, John's the greatest. Why is he great? Because he points people to me. That's what makes John so great. His direct connection pointing people to Jesus. And then why are you and I so great, even greater than John the Baptist? Because we're his people. Because we're his children. Now, he's not saying John's not his children. There's kind of a division in the eras, Old Testament, New Testament. John's the last of the Old Testament prophets. In reality, fulfillment, as Jesus will say, all the, the law and the prophets prophesied until John, meaning they had their fulfillment now. But here's what I want you to see. Don't get so caught up in that. We're sons and daughters of God. That's a bold claim. We're not just saying Jesus is the one and only God. We're also saying we know the one and only God and he knows us. You share that in the world, you're, you're a loon. You're crazy. You're dangerous. You're dangerous. But this is who we are in Christ. This is what we're going to say when we take the Lord's Supper. We are united to him. And he is united to us. It's also laughable in some sense. I mean, all this. What Jesus is saying, what we believe, is laughable. Why? Because this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, doesn't it seem so weak? John's in prison. We're not triumphing. Seems weak. And this is often where we struggle, isn't it? It's the weakness. I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the king. But there seems to be this disconnect when I, I go and I live my life. Do you feel that way? I don't feel like I'm a son and daughter of the king sometimes. I feel like I'm an orphan. I feel like I got no home. And this is exactly what Jesus begins to acknowledge, this irony that he's the king, that, that we are the greatest because of our relationship with him. But he, he recognizes this irony in verse 12. Look at what he says. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has what? suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. I really want to unpack a lot of this, but this is chapter 13. Jesus teases us with things, and then he goes and unpacks them in his teaching on the parables of the kingdom. But here's what I want us to see. This whole conversation about John, I've already mentioned it. This kingdom that Jesus is preaching, the, the, the kingdom that John has preached, has landed John in jail, imprisoned. And, and we know what's going to happen when we read chapter 14, if you're familiar. He has his head chopped off. He doesn't get out. In fact, he dies. And if we just expand the storyline just a little bit more, well, we see that Jesus... He's crucified. He's crucified. But here's the, here's the power of what's going on. The kingdom comes through his death. Comes through his death. And here's what's offensive to our ears. This is where we, we need to be reminded weekly, daily. The kingdom of God comes through suffering and death. 
That's what Jesus is teaching us here. The kingdom of God will not look triumphant until Jesus returns. That's what he's reminding us. It will in, in moments. We can look here. We can celebrate. We just heard from, from, from Kyle talking about the jail. And we, we might be thinking like John. Nothing significant is happening yet except in the hidden places. So at 33 men came and then another 12 ladies, I think. There's like 45 people here in the gospel. And some of you I begin hearing or wanting to be more involved, heard of Bible study, wanting to be start, start a weekly Bible study in the jail. It looks insignificant. But yet it's the power of God to those who believe, right? Your story of God's grace saving you, yeah, the world doesn't think anything of it. They don't even know your name, but God does. He not only knows your names, but he knows how many hairs are on your head. You're significant. And what we need to remind ourselves is that the kingdom of God to the watching world will not look triumphant. And it is this very reason that many, if not most, will not come to Jesus. It's just too weak. Why would I want that Savior? They're offended by him. What kind of king are you? And those are the things, those are the doubts, those are the struggles that even we will battle with as we face death, as we face suffering of various sorts. Jesus, your kingdom come? I'm not really seeing it. But then we're reminded, oh, this kingdom's not of this world. I'm looking forward. And, I, and, and we triumph because his kingdom's at odds with this kingdom that we're in. And it looks like he's losing, but the, just as we're reminded in the cross, it looked like he was losing. But his greatest moment of suffering was his greatest victory as he purchased the sins, or, or redeemed people from the sins, uh, from all their sins. Jesus says, verse 15, he who has ears, let him hear. What's he talking about? These things cannot be perceived by natural means, only supernatural means. And those who believe, those who have been saved, those who experience the power of the kingdom, it's the power of God unto salvation. Jesus saved me. And I was dead, I was in darkness, now I'm in light and I'm alive. And so to the one who has ears to hear, Jesus says that, that hearing by faith you will see the power of the kingdom through death and resurrection. You'll actually experience the resurrection. That's how you experience it. You have to die to experience resurrection power. And it's this note of suffering and weakness that leads to the third offense. Jesus' associations. Because the kingdom of God is not of this world, what is Jesus doing? Jesus reaches out to those who are the rejects of the world. That's what he's doing. He reaches out to the rejects of the world. And this association in his day was not only offensive, but it appeared immoral. And we would think, Jesus, why don't you go after the, 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 the movers and the shakers? No, he goes after for you and me. Are you offended by that? 
He goes after you and me. This is what Jesus means when he, he tells this little parable in verses 16 and 17. Look there. What should I compare this generation? When he says this generation, he's talking about this, this people living here. What, what kind of, in this case, Israel. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played for you, the fl- we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. A dirge is a, a funeral song. What is Jesus talking about? He's giving us a taste of the parables of the kingdom. Let him know his ears, let him hear. What's he talking about? Well, basically, he explains it in, in verse 18 and 19. John's the first one. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. So this is Israel saying, John, we played the flute for you and you wouldn't dance. What are they they saying? They opposed John because he was too extreme. He wouldn't dance when they played the flute. He was living an ascetic lifestyle. He was eating locusts and honey, living out in the wilderness. That guy's too extreme for us. And Matthew tells us about this. Jesus brings John up just to flip it over and then to point out Jesus. But when Jesus came, John, he didn't eat or drink, but Jesus came and he was the opposite. He was too taboo. He eats and drinks with sinners. John withdrew. Jesus dives in. Not only that, he enjoys himself with sinners. Do you see that? And he doesn't mourn when we sing the dirge. Jesus, you should be fasting. You should not be hanging out with them. You should not be enjoying yourself with those people. He's the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Amen, right? Amen. He's my friend. Is he yours? He's my friend. And he enjoys me. And he enjoys you. He enjoys being with sinners. That's who Jesus is. That's where he goes. And what's offensive about Jesus' associations is that Jesus only associates with sinners. That's the only people he identifies with. That's actually what he was doing when John baptized him. He did not need to repent of any sin, but by being baptized, he identified with those who needed to repent of sin. He said, I have come, and I have come to dwell among you. And so you, if you want to associate with Jesus, must see yourself as a reject of the world before you'll see your need for him because he only comes for losers. You see that? That's what he's going after. He only comes for losers. He only comes for rejects. He only comes for sinners. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that calls good evil and evil good. And such a world that we live in will have casualties of its own. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And rebellion toward God and his design, it brings destruction. It it reaps ruin. It brings heartache. But here's the good news. For those who have been chewed up and spit out by the world, Jesus stands with open arms. He says, come. 
I want to dwell with you. And that's what we're going to do at the Lord's Supper. Pastor Corey's going to come and lead us. And Jesus is saying to us, come to my table. Sinners only. Sinners only. Sinners who see themselves that way and sinners who see me as their only hope. Blessed are you if you're not offended by me. Let's remember that as we go to the Lord in prayer and turn our attention to the Lord's table.